When a respiratory infection strikes, bad things can happen. But we don't normally need to worry about the brain until now. When it comes to COVID-19, it seems no part of the body is safe. And as we're learning, the symptoms can range from something as mild as a headache to a life-threatening situation. And the consequences may end up lasting much longer than the virus itself. This week, we're going to put our thinking caps on as we discuss the effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection on the brain and the nervous system. We're going to talk with a neurosurgical resident who has been seeing and studying the different ways this virus can gain access to our brains and how our normal bodily defense systems may simply not be enough. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the world of CSF. That's cerebral spinal fluid, if you're asking. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Our brains do so much for us. They help us to think, yes. But they are also hubs for so much of our existence. The brain controls our patterns of movement, our ability to react to various outside stimuli, and even the involuntary action of breathing. Not surprisingly, the brain is one of the most protected places in the body. To gain access, you need to get past the bones of the skull and then three thin membranes called meninges. Not to mention, you have to get through that CSF, which is filled with a variety of immune factors that will prevent you from getting anywhere close. Mind you, that doesn't mean a virus can't get into that sacred space. Viruses such as herpes and HIV have been found inside the brain space, and now it seems SARS-CoV-2 also has that ability. We're just not entirely sure how that happens. What we do know is that the infection has led to psychological and neurological symptoms better known as sequelae. Some of these conditions sound rather ominous, such as hypoxic encephalopathy, and others, well, clotting of the blood that could lead to strokes doesn't need a fancy name to imply how serious that can be. And then there's the chance for psychological problems such as psychosis and dementia. To learn more about the effects of SARS-CoV-2 on the brain and the nervous system in general, I have joining me Mark McLean. He is a resident in the Department of Neurosurgery at Dalhousie University. He's been focused on learning more about the ways this virus gets into our brains and how ultimately this could lead to making our experience far worse than any other respiratory virus we may have faced in the past. Define the term neurological sequelae, and what does this mean in terms of infectious disease in general? I think there are actually a few terms worth discussing in order to, to frame this. Sequelae, I mean, it sounds fancy. And really what this means is that when a patient develops a disease, they might experience abnormal signs or symptoms as a result, and then those would collectively be referred to as sequelae. A symptom, really what it boils down to is it's an abnormal function or feeling that a patient might experience. They can be subjective or objective, and uh, examples might include a headache that's, that could be subjective, or others, you know, like a fever, and that could be subjective where a patient feels hot, or it could be objective where you could actually measure it with a thermometer. Signs are a little bit different in, in that they are often observed by healthcare providers, and they can provide clues to assist uh, in diagnosis of a disease. So an example would be a skin rash. And, and ultimately, we collect and combine these signs and symptoms in order to make a diagnosis. Neurological 
often is used to refer to things such as strength or sensation uh, or our senses, our perception, so vision, hearing, and smell. They can also include nonspecific things too. So neurological is a bit of an umbrella term and it could even include changes in mentation. So things like confusion or delirium. So we do think of COVID as a respiratory infection, but we're learning that it has many more systemic sequelae as a result. Your focus being neurological probably has almost like a laundry list of possible options. However, perhaps only a few actually do relate to the actual infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And I'm just wondering if you can take us through the ones that we know exist. Sure. So I, I would mention, I think, first that it's important to know that viruses, especially respiratory viruses, they, they're known for affecting breathing. And while that can be mild in, in the majority of patients, oftentimes there can be dreaded complications you know, with viruses such as influenza or with SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID dreaded complications such as ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. In order to frame the conversation about what type of neurological issues might arise, I think it's worth noting that when patients develop infection in the lungs, they often feel short of breath. And this is a common sense thing, but we should really dive into a little bit why, why do patients experience that? It's, it comes down to a balance between the blood vessels and the immune system and brain structures that allow us to actually perceive when we need to breathe. The story is actually quite interesting here and the neurological signs and symptoms that have been noticed all fit into a story that emerged early on. Soon after reports of COVID emerged, many healthcare workers actually noticed patients were reporting neurological signs and symptoms. Yeah, actually Italy was one of the first regions that started to report uh, noticing these signs and symptoms among their patients. Um, they were hit hard by COVID uh, very early on. And certainly Wuhan, China, where the virus originated, has provided some of the most detailed reports thus far. There was a study published in the Journal of American Medical Association that showed actually that patients with severe coronavirus-19 infection actually did not have that typical shortness of breath that you would expect with severe lung infection. They actually observed normal signs of infection like heart rate change, temperature change, or change in oxygen levels. But in about half of patients with COVID infection and half of those on um, a ventilator, they noticed that patients weren't experiencing the shortness of breath. It prompted the scientific community to question, what really is, what's the mechanism here? Why aren't these patients experiencing this? And is it a neurological problem? I think what this boils down to, or at least one of the theories, is that the breathing centers in the brainstem, which is a critical structure at the base of the brain that coordinates our basic human functions. When the lungs sense changes in oxygen, the brainstem receives those signals and drives a response to want to breathe. And we experience this as humans as shortness of breath. I mean, without disease, we, don't, we barely even notice this occurs, our desire to breathe, it's automatic. But with lung infection, it becomes more noticeable. So I guess it prompts us to think, well, why is SARS-CoV-2 any different? There have been a few reports, actually, uh, that have come out of prior studies of SARS-CoV-1 that have actually proposed that maybe the virus is infecting the nervous system and, and causing damage to the brainstem. That's just the start. There are a number of others, such as um, patients developing increased rates of stroke, which is a lack of blood flow to the brain, um, or developing symptoms and signs such as encephalopathy, and that's just an umbrella term that's used to refer to changes in level of consciousness. So I think just to summarize, there uh, are, are a number of different signs and symptoms showing up that are neurological, and it seems, at least based on the scientific reports, that the rate of incidence or occurrence is about 25%.
We've also heard reports of psychosis and seizures, which I tend to believe have different types of mechanisms than what one might see with a respiratory virus. Maybe from you know a herpes virus that we know infects the brain, possibly HIV, which we also know can be inside the brain. It makes me wonder if SARS-CoV-2, the virus, is directly responsible, or are these conditions that are related to other problems in the body as a result of that respiratory infection? So this is a very important and interesting question, and certainly has been the subject of many recent published scientific articles. Uh, a variety of different explanations have been proposed. One of the most logical reasons, I think, for why patients might be experiencing psychosis or other neurological signs and symptoms could be related to the fact that the coronavirus disease involves a large amount of widespread inflammation in the body. And these patients who are quite sick develop nonspecific symptoms such as headache or changes in level of consciousness. And these just are, th these are signs and symptoms we see in severely ill patients. It's in part due to a ramped up immune response to a foreign infection in our body that our body's never seen before. We don't have a prior immune response prepared. Alternatively, something that has caught my interest and attention, potentially what could be going on is actually a virus invading the nervous system. SARS-CoV-2 hasn't been around very long, and we don't have a number of prospective studies to really draw on or draw from how the virus might actually invade the nervous system. But a lot of the information that we know about this uh, proposed theory comes from SARS-CoV-1, and that's one of the more well-known human coronavirus infections. Many people will remember this. It, it definitely impacted many people in North America. They actually share a protein or have a similar protein on their surface that binds to human receptors. And that receptor is angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2 for short. The receptors bind widely or is found widely throughout the body. And it is found in areas in such as the nervous tissue, the brain, as we mentioned before, the brain stem. And it's been shown that actually SARS-CoV-1 has been found in the brain and in the brainstem. So it seems feasible that SARS-CoV-2 could be related to neurological symptoms because of invasion in the brain. And there have been some studies published in prestigious journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, which have actually found the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the brain on autopsy. Now, we're going to get into the blood-brain barrier uh, in a little bit, but I do want to ask you whether or not you think that the SARS-CoV-2 virus could possibly be getting into the neuroepithelial cells, or do you believe that this isn't really a, a shunt pathway that's getting to the brain, that it actually is something that could be happening uh, through the natural progression of this disease? The cr coronaviruses are transmitted by respiratory droplets, and the SARS-CoV-1 and 2 spike proteins bind to human ACE2 receptors. These are, these are found in the lungs and the airway tissue. They're actually found in the wall of blood vessels, including the small vessels in the brain. And it's been shown actually in a recent study that, that the virus can bind the uh, small blood vessels specifically. At this point, the routes by which SARS-CoV-2 reaches the brain are only partly understood. I think the important thing here is to note that it, it has been shown that coronaviruses do demonstrate a tropism for nerve cells. And this means simply that they're capable of infecting the nerve cells. And certainly one route um, might include infection of the olfactory nerve at the base of the brain, which is known to control our smell. Um, a number of different respiratory viruses have been shown to invade the brain by this route, which is 
referred to by the term neuronal axonal neuroinvasion. But another route could certainly be the vagus nerve. Even infection in the respiratory tract can lead to infection of the vagus nerve and potentially allow access for the uh, virus to get into the brain and brainstem. When a virus infects the respiratory tract, the immune system tends to fight at the site of invasion. The nose, the throat, and the lungs. But the fight can head elsewhere in the body, and the virus can get into the bloodstream. Thankfully, even if that does happen, the brain is usually protected. It's known as the blood-brain barrier, and it can help keep viruses out. But as we've heard, that doesn't always seem to be the case. And there is a significant problem with SARS-CoV-2. Figuring out how this virus is getting past the barrier is a huge task in research, and answers are hard to come by without significant time in the clinical environment. It's why Mark McLean is perfectly suited to help us understand what is happening. Not only is he on the floor with patients, he's also trying to learn more about this disease so that we can treat it and prevent some, or all, of the troubling consequences. Let's just start at the beginning. What is the blood-brain barrier? So in medicine and anatomy, there are very few things given straightforward and self-explanatory names. Thankfully, the blood-brain barrier is one of them. The blood vessels of the brain contain a physical barrier that prevents movement of some small and large molecules from moving from the bloodstream and entering into the brain. And the blood-brain barrier plays a critical role in both health and disease. It really protects the brain from certain types of toxins that, uh, get, that would eventually get cleared from the blood, but that could potentially be harmful to the brain. We have endothelial cells, which are cells that line the blood vessels, and they're connected tightly to each other by proteins called tight junctions. There are a number of other cell types, pericytes, astrocytes, and microglia that support this physical barrier and help ultimately control it opening and closing to allow selective passage, so to speak. So if this natural barrier becomes dysfunctional, that's when problems can arise. Just to name one or two examples, problems with the blood-brain barrier have been implicated in conditions like epilepsy and neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease. And just to give you an idea, to really put it into perspective, if you were to actually inject dye into a patient's blood vessels and you were to take a picture of the brain, for example, with a magnetic resonance imaging or another healthcare tool to look at the brain, it would normally stay in the blood vessels. It wouldn't leak into the brain tissue. But if you have states of disease, like a tumor in the brain, for example, that blood-brain barrier is broken down, and it actually, you can see the molecules leak into the brain. So that's pretty cool. How might SARS-CoV-2 be breaking through that barrier? I personally find this question very interesting, and I'd like to talk a little bit about potentially the role of the blood-brain barrier. We had already discussed that the SARS-CoV-2 virus might invade the brain. One of the routes that I think is quite interesting includes potentially the virus crossing the blood-brain barrier. SARS-CoV-1 from many years ago and SARS-CoV-2 had been shown again to bind the small vessels in the brain, specifically that ACE2 receptor. It's also been shown that the virus can infect the circulating immune cells called monocytes, and those infected cells could actually pass along or through a leaky blood-brain barrier. The key to this is that the SARS-CoV-2 infection drives up inflammation in the body. Molecules called cytokines get ramped up 
and those are known to actually cause leaky blood-brain barrier. So it's possible that in the context of this severe inflammatory infection, that the blood-brain barrier becomes leaky and those infected cells can get into the nervous system. It's interesting that you mention the monocytes. In immunology, they're sort of like the precursor to all the really good fighting cells that exist. If you have trouble with your monocytes, you may end up with severe problems. Perhaps SARS-CoV-2 is sort of taking over weaknesses that we may already have in our body, which then makes me wonder, because you're a clinician and, and you look from the clinical side, do you think we might be able to screen patients to be able to uh, look for these types of weaknesses so that we can identify those who are at higher risk for blood-brain barrier troubles? In healthcare, one of the most ideal goals is certainly to screen early and prevent disease. We know that if patients come in with already manifesting signs and symptoms and we're treating, in a way, it's like playing catch-up. It would be great if we could detect early and screening infected patients with SARS-CoV-2 for blood-brain barrier dysfunction could potentially allow early detection of patients at risk for severe outcomes. The Wuhan China cohort, which reported on neurological symptoms, demonstrated to us that the patients that are developing those symptoms have severe disease. And oftentimes the neurological symptoms were developing first. So it definitely makes us think, okay, maybe there is an opportunity to screen patients. One of the ways that we can screen the blood screen for blood brain barrier function is to use MRI scanning, this magnetic resonance imaging or taking pictures of the brain. But the problem with this is that it's costly and time intensive. And so if we're thinking about screening large volumes of population, particularly patients who are ventilated or require precautions to prevent spread of disease, that can be problematic. One technique which I think might be interesting, and it hasn't been tested among patients with COVID, at, at least at this point in time, would be what's called fluorescein retinal angiography. And this might be a cost and time effective alternative. Specifically, it's been shown in critically ill patients that you can use this technique to image uh, the vessels in the eye to get an idea of blood-brain barrier function. There's actually been one study that's shown in a SARS-CoV-1 patient that increased leaky blood vessels in the eye preceded the onset of neurological disease and severe lung disease. Uh, but again, to, to my knowledge, this hasn't been studied for SARS-CoV-2. And at least at this point in time, I don't think there are any FDA-approved or really widespread blood tests that we can use to, to measure blood-brain barrier integrity in the context of these infections. You mentioned MRI, but... A lot of people have heard CT scans when they hear about respiratory virus infection, especially with SARS-CoV-2. Could you just tell us what the difference is between a CT scan and an MRI? Certainly. So CAT scans or CT scans, these are synonymous. This is an imaging type or modality that uses essentially almost like x-ray technology to create relatively high resolution picture. And it's similar to MRI in that you know a patient will lie into a big tube and it makes loud sounds and it collects data and then we can do complex computing to generate an image that we can actually look and assess the tissues. It's great for looking at the lungs. It's great for looking at the problems that develop secondary to COVID and the type of lung disease that occurs. In my line of study in neurosurgery, CAT scans are good for looking at bone and they're good for looking at blood or other fluid. MRI scan is a little bit different. MRI scan 
doesn't work on the same type of x-ray technology. It actually involves use of a large magnet to help orient the water molecules in patient's tissue. By orienting the molecules and turning the magnet on and turning it off at specified frequencies or times, those molecules relax depending on what, at different rates, depending on what the tissue is made up of. This again, we can use really complex computing to generate images that are actually much higher resolution than CT when we're specifically looking at the soft tissue. So again, in my line of study, neurosurgery, this is phenomenal for looking at the brain. Okay, so that's the diagnostic screening. But we also are in a situation where there have been millions of people who have been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and we have seen many people having different types of sequelae. Do you think we could probably go back and look at them and find out whether or not there may be ways to reduce the chances for severe infection as a prophylaxis? so that we don't have to worry about neurological disease because we've already done something about it. Do, do you think that this might be a, a possibility when we're looking at the neuroscience field for using something that could potentially help to reduce the chances for these neurological sequelae? I think that if we do indeed use some of these screening tools to pick up and detect problems with, say, the blood-brain barrier, and this does give us an understanding of the neurological signs and symptoms that are developing, and these do indeed end up being related, then there are different types of therapies that we could use to modulate or change the blood-brain barrier function. At least in the neuroscience community, there's a type of medication called uh, NMDA receptor antagonist. And these receptors are found uh, on nerve cells and play a role in regulating the amount of electrolytes and neurotransmitters like potassium and glutamate, which are known to contribute to blood-brain barrier dysfunction. And so if we could find out and determine that a virus was able to access the brain, and that's causing a lot of inflammation, this could potentially be activating the NMDA receptors and ultimately leading through complex pathways to cell and nerve death in the brain. So Ultimately, by blocking those receptors, that could potentially offer a different type of therapy. These, these NMDA receptors are also expressed on immune cells, cells that are involved in the inflammatory response and protecting us. If we block those, it might help block the NMDA receptor. It might not only decrease blood-brain barrier dysfunction, but could also help decrease the amount of immune cells that are secreting um, molecules that increase inflammation in the lungs and the brain. So this really sounds like a supply and demand issue. The virus is looking for something, and if we can take away the supply of whatever that receptor happens to be, we may ultimately be able to reduce the chances for sequelae of any system, not just simply neurological. Absolutely. Key to any involvement of a virus in the body will be its binding to receptors. And as we mentioned before, the ACE2 receptor is getting a lot of attention. Right now, the issue is that this is expressed widely throughout the body. It's found in the brain, it's found in the muscles, it's found in the gastrointestinal tract. In fact, it's even found in areas of the brain where there is no blood-brain barrier. So there's a lot of studying that needs to be done to try and figure out what is the role of the ACE2 receptor and, and the virus binding that receptor. And then certainly other 
more neuroscience-specific receptors like the NMDA receptor also deserve study as well. We've heard a lot about the so-called long COVID, in which people seem to be having symptoms, sequelae, that are lasting far longer than the infection itself. And do you believe that this could possibly happen at the neurological level? And might this, unfortunately, but possibly opportunistically, give us the chance to be able to develop drug regimens or treatment regimens so that we don't have to deal with this type of thing in the future? Long COVID seems to be a term that's referring to those who are not recovering as quickly as we would expect from a respiratory virus. So rather than maybe a week or two, some patients are experiencing symptoms for months. And I think that it depends what patients we're talking about. So there are going to be patients that develop severe neurological symptoms and signs like stroke or seizure, and those will have lasting consequences. And I don't think that's quite what this term refers to. I think this, this is more referring to some of the more nonspecific symptoms or signs like headaches, muscle aches, insomnia, palpitations, joint pain, or perhaps even depression or mental uh, health-related conditions. I think part of the explanation here is that our body's responding to a new virus we, we've, that our body hasn't seen before, even though it is somewhat similar to SARS-CoV-1. We haven't developed a robust immune response to this before, and the virus is known to be binding widely throughout the body and many organs, and so this could be contributing to the array of different signs and symptoms, but it really begs the question of how long will it last, what are the causes, how do we prevent it? And I think ultimately we need just need more robust scientific evidence and data to address these questions. At least at this point, we don't have those prospective studies monitoring patients before they develop the disease. So we, we need to follow patients out longer, understand the trajectory, the complications, and get an idea of the mechanisms. And most importantly, we need to not only look at hospitalized patients, but non-hospitalized patients coming from different ethnic groups, income levels, medical backgrounds. That will help us better define what is long COVID and make sure that we don't overlook this as a syndrome in the absence of a specific diagnostic test as we move forward. And lastly, we need to screen for the development of chronic neurological disease that might develop down the road because there are studies out there that have proposed that viral illness, respiratory viral illness, may cause chronic disease like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease, for example. And that brings us to the end of the discussion. But I'm sure we haven't answered all of your questions about COVID-19 and the brain. Send me your question by tweeting me at jatetro, emailing me at thegermguy at gmail.com, or head over to speakpipe.com slash sass and post your question there. We'll take several of them and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Make sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Mark McLean. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. 
have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show them some sass.